Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History's Best Storytellers, our collection of interviews with some of today's best history authors. And we cover all the subjects here, from unexplained mysteries to life-changing events, from World War II to the Alamo, from heroes to hellions. We've got a lot of newly discovered history for you here, with some very revealing conversations. This is the author's side of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and your backstage pass to history as it really happened. And now, another one of history's best storytellers, coming up. Welcome, 1001 Heroes listeners. We have a very special guest with us today, and that's author Dean Reuter, who has written The Hidden Nazi, the untold story of America's deal with the devil, that devil being Hans Kemmler. It's a fantastic story, really one of the best reads uh, I've had in quite a while. Dean, I would like you to explain your background a little bit and then get into what inspired you to write this great story. Sure. Let me start by thanking you for having me on. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. You're very welcome. Um, uh, this is a great, uh, a great forum for me. So I am a lawyer by training. I've lived everywhere. My father was a U.S. Army officer, so I was born in Heidelberg, Germany. I uh, lived in Oklahoma, Texas, uh, but mostly the Washington, D.C. area, although I finished law school at Northwestern in Chicago, so I spent a few years in Chicago. Uh, I've served in the federal government a couple times, mostly in the IG community, which is federal law enforcement. So I've overseen audits and investigations, some criminal investigations. Um, I feel like that has sort of given me this uh, nose for the hunt. Uh, that I, that we all used, all three of us used in in putting this book, The Hidden Nazi, together. I, I would describe myself as somebody who likes solving problems, who likes mysteries, and this book certainly uh, scratched that itch. And I'll tell you how I explain to you first how I came to this story. There's a fellow I've known, uh, Keith Chester. You can see him on the uh, on the book cover there since college, and he came to me about twelve years ago as a lawyer, as a friend, asking me to write a collaboration agreement so that he could share research information with the other fellow who's on the cover, uh, Dr. Colm Lowry. They were both World War II buffs, uh, had both been researching this all-powerful Nazi general, and they didn't know each other, but they wanted to share information with one another and you know, make sure they uh, had some sort of agreement as to the parameters of sharing that information because they were discovering some remarkable things, but they both had these big holes missing uh, in, their, in their research. Uh, 
So they thought, well, if we team up, maybe, you know, together, our research could sort of feather together in a way that would, uh, that would make a whole. So I got involved originally as a lawyer, drafted this collaboration agreement. And then, you know, over a year or two, Keith, my friend, uh, started to feed me information about the substance of this character they were researching, Dr. Uh, General Hans Kammler. And by the way, I've heard his name pronounced Kammler and Kammler. So uh, you, you can adopt whichever uh, you like. But Keith described to me this Nazi general, Kammler, all-powerful, all-evil, who had escaped the scrutiny of history. And he went on to describe Kammler's role in the war. And, you know, I started doing research on my own. I was extremely skeptical that, that somebody so powerful and so wicked could have escaped uh, the attention of historians for 75 years. But he started feeding me documents. Keith started feeding me documents. I started doing research on my own. Uh, I you know, spent hours and hours at the Holocaust uh, Memorial here in Washington, D.C., which has a great research library upstairs. Uh, you know, uh, Keith and Colm had been to national archives all over Europe and the United States, made Freedom of Information Act requests and you know, requests for documents from all over the country, uh, military bases. It's, it's astounding to me. Uh, how far and wide the the records of World War II are scattered. But back to Kammler, what we learned, he was trained as an architect and an engineer. Uh, he grew up during World War I. He was born in 1901, so he was becoming a man as Germany was suddenly losing the war. He became a civil servant between the war. He you know, participated as an engineer in what I describe as pretty benign projects, just regular civil service roadways, uh, a police uh, tra test track, communications networks, other uh, regular buildings. Then the war starts and he gets involved in the Holocaust in a, in a huge way. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't conclude that the Holocaust wouldn't have happened without him, but he made it possible. He was one of the uh, first to join Hitler's straight. Socialist Party, right? He was an early, early adopter with them. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I find that, that he became as powerful as he was. In, in Nazi Germany, uh, you know, Hitler, Hitler came to power in the early 1930s, and there was a, a distinction in Nazi Germany between the ideologues and the non-ideologues. And even within the ideologues, there was a distinction between the ardent Nazis and those that were viewed as opportunists. Uh, Kammler because he had grown up in World War I, was an anti-communist, uh, felt betrayed by the, by the German army, joined the Nazi party even before Hitler became chancellor, and then joined the dreaded SS uh, even before Hitler became president. So he checked the box in terms of being an early adherent, an ardent Nazi. So he had uh, this uh, uh, patina of credibility that lots of other folks didn't enjoy. After he did those civil service projects I mentioned, he joined the Luftwaffe. And that, that gave him additional credibility, even beyond what he already enjoyed, because uh, Hitler never trusted the Wehrmacht, the, the German army. Yeah, it was, there's this stabbed in the back theory that the German army betrayed the German people as they capitulated uh, at the end of World War I. Uh, and, and, and then uh, Hitler stood up the Luftwaffe. So the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, was a creature of Hitler, and he trusted it implicitly. So Kammler, uh, an early uh, Nazi Party member, an early SS member, and now uh, a member of the Luftwaffe, the most trusted 
uh, branch of the military from Hitler's perspective. He, he had this golden boy resume. So uh, in later years, midway through the, through the war, uh, when the Nazis decided upon the Holocaust, they decided that one of the imperatives of the regime was going to be to try to exterminate, eradicate the entire Jewish population globally, uh, they turned to Kamler, uh, an expert by that point in large construction projects, uh, large facilities. And you know, Keith and Colm, um, taking, take, taking us back to, to my early involvement in this story, insisted that Kamler played a key role in the Holocaust. And I, honestly, I was extremely skeptical, probably as skeptical as, as your readers are, that somebody that wicked um, who would rise to such levels of power, ultimately, eventually, to rule all of Germany's secret weapons, could, could go unexamined by history. I don't, recall um, so, his, I don't recall his name as being among the names of the Nazi hunters. Uh, it was, he was nope. never popularized. How did they miss him? Did they, did they believe so, he was dead? Yes, they did. Uh, they did. Uh, at the end of the war, the conventional history has us believe, and the adjudicated history even. Uh, you know, if you're a, a student of the war, you realize that Germany's territory was contracting uh, for the last eight, the last 18 months of the war. At the very end, uh, they were basically controlling Bavaria and some of eastern, uh, western Czechoslovakia, including Prague. Kamler, uh, at the very end of the war, finds himself in Prague, according to his driver becomes despondent, walks off into the woods, and shoots and kills himself. His wife, Kamler's wife, that is, has him adjudicated dead three years ago by a, a court in Berlin. Uh, so he's officially dead, and nobody pursued him. Uh, he was lost to history. Um, we, uh, in doing the research for The Hidden Nazi, our book, we were in touch with the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Special Investigations. That's the unit within the U.S. government that, that are the Nazi hunters. We were in touch with them. We were in touch with the Wiesenthal Center. Uh, we were in touch with the Mossad uh, from Israel. And the, the, to paraphrase their answer, uh, we were after living Nazis. We never pursued Kamler. He was dead. Considering his value to the Nazis, you would think they'd have to go on the next step just to confirm it in some way. So, you know, our, our research for the hidden Nazi indicates that, you know, not surprisingly, the end of the war was a bad scramble. It, it really was chaos. And uh, I think the Americans and the French and the British were preoccupied with the new enemy, uh, the Soviet Union. So uh, we, we never had this period of, OK, let's take a breath. The war's over. Um, there obviously were efforts to find the, the, the worst of the Nazis and prosecute them. Um, it's clear that was there was a very strong uh, and, and careful effort to do that. But it really did focus on people they knew to be alive. And nobody even suspected that Kamler had uh, faked his own suicide. Hmm. So bring us to the point where you are highly skeptic about this guy's, the possibility of this guy being alive. How did your best friends talk you into it? Well, um, <laughs> That's a great, uh, a great question. Um, it was by increments, uh, really. I mean, they started to feed me documents. So first of all, I should say, you know, Kamler went on uh, after, after building out the Holocaust. You know, he, he built the camps, he built the gas chambers. Then he ruled all of Germany's secret weapons. So he really was all powerful. And I can go into his bio a little bit more later. But that, that's the information that was presented to me. That's why I was skeptical. 
But Keith and Colm started to very cleverly, I thought, feed me documents um, that, that started to prove different elements of this story. And I write in the book, I wrote this book first person, which is very unconventional, but I think very interesting. I think it makes uh, uh, The Hidden Nazi a good book for readers. Um, it makes it your story, too, because you were forging that trail. That's right. So it makes it a good That's story right. so as we follow you. Yeah, it's the story of our discovery of, of and hunt for Kamler. Um, but my whole heritage is is German. My my family's been in this country for you know 150 years, and my dad was a U.S. Army officer. Um, but I, I happen to have been born in Germany because my father was stationed there, and so I. I, I realized I had this great sensitivity to what happened in World War II, not just the war, but what happened in the Holocaust. Uh, so I, I was naturally curious. I was, as I describe in The Hidden Nazi, I was an easy mark for Keith and Colm. If they were looking for an author, um, you know, and I had done a couple books before. I, I'd, I've been involved with book projects, law and policy books. Um, and they're fantastic researchers, uh, have great ideas about how to put the book together, but but needed me, um, you know, to to bring the publishing side in. Could you explain? You told me, and the book says he had an architectural degree. I may have missed it in the book, but I was wondering where he got the discreet. I was wondering where he got the degree in engineering, as in rocket engineering, and that that sort of expertise. So that, that, that's a good question, too, and, and, and I'm glad you asked that. He wasn't a rocket scientist. He got a, an undergraduate degree in architecture and engineering and a Ph.D. from uh, the Technical University in Hanover in, in 1929 in engineering. Um, but he relied on others uh, to be the rocket scientists. There's a guy that you probably have heard of, uh, Werner von Braun, who ended Certainly. up in the United States. Um, he, along with you know 150 other rocket scientists, really became the United States rocket team and got us on the moon and helped make uh, our ICBM, helped us win the Cold War. In fact, there's a, uh, with regard to the moonshot, there's an old Bob Hope joke that really is based in truth. Bob Hope used to joke that uh, we got to the moon first because our Nazi scientists were better than the Soviet Nazi scientists. So we managed to get the best of the rocket scientists. And part of the book, The Hidden Nazi, is uh, an explanation of Kamler's role, which was critical, absolutely critical in bringing that rocket team here to the United States. I'll let you progress to that point. I'll also take you back now to your search and let you kind of give this to us chronologically rather than jump ahead, which I know I, I tend to do. Okay. Continue with your story. Uh, first, there's the recruitment of me by Keith and Colm uh, and my skepticism. I got over that, and then we became a team uh, bound and determined to to hunt down Kamler. And the first thing I did, we did, was to put together his bio. You know, and that was painstaking research because really he's been lost to history. But uh, we found that he was born in 1901 in what is now Poland, uh, the the son of a of a of a Prussian army officer. Uh, that Prussian army officer was an ardent anti-communist. Because Kamler came to manhood during the war, he was too young to serve in the war, uh, but he became an anti-communist as well. Uh, it followed in his father's footsteps, and uh, right after the war, he joined Kamler, that is, joined uh, the Free Corps, which is the Eastern Border Defense, a militarized unit to fight anti-communists, among the very first to do so. 
So that was his early history. And at that time, he's also getting uh, his undergraduate degree in architecture. And by now we're into the 20s. And he served uh, well, but really without distinction uh, for the entire early parts of his career. There's not a lot of information to be had on him. Um, he was, and this is a period of, of, of Germany where it's between the war. It's suffering under the Treaty of Versailles. Everything is going badly for Germany. The economy's terrible. Uh, we're entering a period here where, uh, and I was fascinated to learn this, workers in Germany would report for work in the morning. Inflation was so rampant. They would report for work in the morning and their wives would come and get their pay for the morning shift and go out and buy groceries and bread because if they waited till evening to get their pay for the morning, it would be worth less money. It'd be less valuable. Inflation was that, uh, that staggeringly high. So during the 20s, Kamler, we found nothing exceptional. Uh, then in 1929, he gets his Ph.D. in engineering. He also marries. He's, he's 29 years old in 1930 in June when he marries Jutta Horn, a woman from middle Germany, uh, a small town with a childhood home of, of Nietzsche, it turns out, that's famous for a cherry festival every June. And that's when they married. So, you know, it sort of paints this almost romantic picture of an idyllic wedding in, in June of 1930. Uh, and still, Germany's suffering, but there's not any sort of winds of calamity just yet. Hitler has not yet risen to power. By now, Kamler's married. He'll eventually have five children, uh, two of whom die early. Uh, two daughters died in, in infancy, tragically. But uh, Kamler goes along pretty much uh, unexceptionally. And then in 1933, Germany, lots of people in Germany have had enough. The Nazi power we see rising to power, uh, the Nazi party, that is. And Kamler joins the Nazi party even before Hitler ascends to power. And then he joins, Kamler joins the Schutzstaffel even before Hitler becomes president. So he has these golden credentials, an early adherent to the Nazi party and to the dreaded SS. That just makes him, in the eyes of all the German leaders, uh, sort of a true blue, not even a patriot. I mean, the, the, the German Wehrmacht, uh, tagged with responsibility for losing World War I, were, were disrespected by Hitler. They were patriots. They were German patriots. Um, but what the SS was in particular, this hardened core of ideologues, were faithful to Hitler. They would take an oath to Hitler, which was extraordinary. Uh, every other country, you're taking an oath to the country, uh, to serve the country, to serve the country's constitution. You're not taking an oath to serve the leader, uh, the dictator, uh, but that's what the SS was. And even within the ranks of the SS, you will see Kamler rise to the highest level. By the end of the war, enjoys the highest rank, highest commissioned rank of the SS. So he's within this core, the leadership of the SS, the worst of the worst, within the Nazi party. So Kamler was really the worst of the worst of the worst, if you will. Just an extraordinary thing. Explain his roles, if you would, uh, during World War II in the extermination of Jews right. and in the development of the rocket program. Sure. Everything I've just explained gets us up to the wartime. So in, in wartime, he associates himself with Heinrich Himmler the leader of the SS, and, and becomes, it gets himself into Himmler's inner circle. And this is all because 
of his golden boy resume, but also because he's been very good at what he does. He's extremely efficient. He is a remarkable person. I mean, he's described by people within the SS, John, as obstinate. They describe his disdain. Uh, one person says he's the worst person I've ever seen, I've ever known. And you have to appreciate these comments as coming from people within the SS. These are murderous people in wartime who are calling Kamler the worst of the worst. So that really is meaningful. But as the Holocaust begins, it's Kamler who uh, is in position to pick Auschwitz as the site for the biggest camp. It already existed as a camp, but it was Kamler who said Auschwitz is going to be the place, the main, the main concentration camp. It was Kamler who literally designed the meets and bounds of the camp. He's defining the perimeter. He's negotiating with the locals, which I had, I never even thought of this, but you know, the local people there had to be negotiated with over, you know, we're going to take this land, we're going to put this here, these roadways are coming through, this railway is coming through. Kemmler did all of that for Auschwitz and then for other camps. Uh, so, and we found he was not, you know, just pushing papers. He wasn't signing orders and, and leaving it to others. He was on site at Auschwitz and at the other camps, making sure everything went just so. He had a nickname uh, during the war, Stabvok. Uh, which translates to dust cloud, which is very descriptive. It sort of describes him racing from one of these camps to the other to the other. Uh, and he's still doing these construction projects as well, but he's building out these camps, uh, barking orders, uh, demanding changes. Uh, he was ruthless even with his own people. And submitting his um, own architectural designs. Yes. Yeah, that's, uh, we, we have... Uh, Lots of architectural designs with his signature at the bottom. The most chilling, I think, is the, the st what became the standard concentration camp barracks. This is the building that housed the, the poor people that were uh, prisoners in the concentration camps. And it's the, it's the facade, the front facade, the elevation, we call it, uh, of a building in architectural um, you know, exactitude, built to scale. In the margin, it has the number of inhabitants that are supposed to live within this barracks, 550 people. And then it, that number is stricken through, and in its place is written 774. So with the stroke of a pen, Kamler managed to I increase human misery by 30%. And this became the standard barracks throughout the Reich. So everywhere there was a concentration camp, this was the barracks they built. And Kamler's subordinate had designed initially a uh, brick barracks. Kamler nixed that, uh, too expensive, uh, too much a luxury. So he had wooden barracks. And of course... Uh, there are no interior walls in these wooden barracks. It's just wooden planks, and wind comes right through, weather comes right through. But that's uh, that's the way Kamler saved money. That's the sort of efficiency he was involved in. So that's the build-out of the camps. But on the heels of that, Kamler starts visiting camp after camp after camp and, and observing experimental ways to perpetrate the Holocaust, to kill as many Jews as possible. That became one of the imperatives of the war effort. If you're a history buff, you've probably heard of the Eisensgruppen. Those were squads of SS soldiers who followed the German troops as they advanced into Eastern Europe, into Russia. Uh, they followed along behind the fighting troops, rounded up Jews, and killed them. And they, they had special, uh, you know, different ways of killing them. It was very grisly, very dark. First, they started just by shooting people and putting them in mass graves. Then they invented this sort of killing van, which is a boxcar van. Uh, they'd put a bunch of people in the back, run the uh, exhaust into the van, uh, and kill as many people as they could. 
even with all those methods, they decided that's not going to be uh, uh, enough. We need something more efficient. Again, Kamler's the man with the answers. He designs gas chambers and crematoria, the hallmarks of the Holocaust, I suppose, if you will. Uh, it was Kamler who designed those. It was Kamler who had them placed in different concentration camps, had them repaired when they failed. And and these were, again, it's just staggering the, the efficiency he went for. These were, you know, crematoria lined up one after another after another. They'd have gas chambers in the basement, elevators to bring bodies up to the crematoria. It was like a factory of death. And that was all Kamler's work in the Holocaust. Amazing, this guy, absolute, absolute devil. Let's get into whatever value the United States must have thought he had uh, as we're going to get to that part of the story. Uh, can, can I can I briefly just interject one thing? Of course. And that uh, I don't want to I don't want to pass over this. The, the other camps Kamler made were slave labor camps, and and this represents sort of a compromise within the German hierarchy. Uh, some people wanted to kill as many Jews as possible. Others wanted to enslave the healthiest Jews and turn them into uh, productive workers for the German war effort. So Kamler then. Uh, was an integral player in that devious scheme as well. We even found pre-war writings where Kamler had envisioned uh, Germany taking over most of Russia, utilizing and then killing 26 million slaves in its effort. So that's a, that's an important component of the of the Holocaust. I don't want to just glide over. So thank you for letting me mention that. Understood. Thank you. Let's go into his uh, experience in the German uh, weapons program and rocketry program? Uh, many of your listeners, especially if they're World War II buffs, might might realize that Germany had some very advanced warfare technology. Uh, they had, uh, uh, during the 1930s, they developed lots of rockets. Uh, in the early 1930s, they had a rocket program, in part because the Treaty of Versailles, the, the treaty that ended World War One, didn't allow Germany to have uh, a large conventional army or navy or air force. Uh, it didn't. It was silent as to rockets. So uh, Germany in 1930 started this rocket program south of Berlin. Uh, in its infancy, it recruited Werner von Braun, who became famous, an American hero, really. It existed south of Berlin for a while, but that facility was too small. So Germany sunk tons of money into a special research center uh, on the Baltic coast in the far north of Germany. And they built rockets larger and larger and larger and larger, resulting in over 100 different rocket models that they were producing, the most famous of which the book, and the book really focuses on three or four of them, but that they were built at this North, north Germany site, the V1, which was the German buzz bomb, which was sort of a not not an extraordinary revolution in armaments, but it was it was unique in the sense that it could project power about 150 miles away. So even when Germany lost air superiority, they could still loft these buzz bombs into London and Southampton and just terrorize people. Thousands of these things coming in every day. I mean, I was in Washington, D.C. on 9-11. And, you know, we all saw what happened to the Twin Towers. And then we felt the ground shake when the plane hit the Pentagon. These uh, landing in London, hundreds, hundreds of them a week. I mean, it was just this endless circle of terror. And that was the buzz bomb. It flew at about uh, 400 miles an hour for 150 miles, and we did have some defenses to it. We could shoot them out of the sky. They weren't, weren't super fast. One of the other rockets they worked on were, was the V-2. This was the liquid-fueled supersonic rocket 
once it was launched, there was no defense to it. You would just be walking down the street and a city block would just explode. It was absolutely terrifying. And uh, it was revolutionary as well. They had to, you know, I try not to glamorize the work of the the Nazi scientists in this regard, uh, but they were miles ahead of anybody else. This is a liquid-fueled rocket that other our allies thought it couldn't be made. They didn't think it was physically possible to make this rocket. And it's fascinating because I was doing all this research on rocket scientists uh, and rocket science. And as I'm doing this, I'm thinking the V2 was probably, you know, eight feet high or something like that. Uh, and as big around as a, as a man or something like that. Uh, it turns out, of course, the V2 is, is 46 feet high, 14 tons. It's a mammoth. Uh, rocket and it travels to a height of 55 miles in, in the air at 3,600 miles an hour. Uh, so a, a conventional airplane, yeah, yeah. And and when it land, when it hit, uh, not land, but when it when it hit, it disgorged enough shrapnel that equaled the weight of 2,000 automobiles. So just massively destructive. Were the Germans able um, to deploy it, or did the, the war end before they could? What's the story on the V2? The Germans were able. The Germans were able to deploy it. I'm glad you mentioned that because Kamler, once they had a test flight of this rocket that was successful, Himmler and Kamler reach out and and they grab this program and they take control of it. Uh, so at first, Kamler's in charge of the research. That's what he takes over. Then, as it gets off the uh, off the uh, drawing board and becomes mass produced, Kamler takes control of the mass production of the missile. And then finally, when it is being deployed, it's Kamler who's in the field actually firing it. He's at the firing sites. And I've never before, uh, and I've studied a lot of war, I've never seen somebody cradle to grave in charge of, of a rocket program. And that was just one small sliver of what Kamler was doing. So the V1 and the V2, uh, enormously effective, but un- unbelievably revolutionary technology. And Kamler uh, knew it all. So his value was just extraordinary. The other rocket, uh, since we have a little bit of time, and this is a longer form interview I, I want to mention, is called the America rocket. Uh, and the Germans spelled America, A-M-E-R-K-A. And it was designed, uh, and, and we found some evidence that it reached, it got a little further along than most people think, but it was designed as a super long range missile uh, that could leave Europe and, and reach the eastern seaboard of the United States, putting New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., all within range. And, and, when you, and when you sit back and think about, oh, Germany had, they had chemical weapons, they had biological weapons. Uh, we saw some, some evidence that they got further with nuclear research than anybody believes, and they were certainly far enough to put together a dirty bomb. When you couple those notions with, uh, with an America rocket that could, could reach our eastern seaboard, it's, it's a real game changer. Now, you said they, de- they deployed the, the V-2. Who got hit they with the V-2? The v- they deployed the V-1. The V-1 and the V-2 were actually used in battle, thousands of them, literally. When I mentioned city blocks exploding, that was London, that was Southampton, and that was Antwerp. Uh, near the end of the war, Antwerp became a critical site as the, uh, as for supply lines um, as the Allies were moving across Western Europe. Uh, so those all became targets. These The V-2 rockets... As good as they were, they had a, an accuracy level of about one to two percent, which sounds extraordinarily good. Um, but if you remember, they're flying 250 miles 
a one percent margin of error puts it within you know a two or three mile radius, which is not terribly useful if you're trying to you know knock out a particular battalion of tanks. But if you're looking at you know targeting a city, it's a perfect weapon. I don't I don't know if you're familiar with the with the uh, with with Ramagan, the bridge over Ramagan. Yes, I was just um, I was just going to mention that we did we did a, a two part a show on a bridge too far, which was Operation Market Garden. Right, very so, unique story. We, we found some evidence that that one of the one of the designs of Market Garden, uh, Montgomery's idea to go north, was to move the rocket launch bases, the V two bases, the sites they were being launched, to move them further west, so they wouldn't be able to hit London. Um, so that so must have been top secret at the time because it isn't mentioned in the in the normal reading and study and research. Right on Operation Market Guard. A lot of the criticism goes to Montgomery. And of course, we wonder why Eisenhower gave him the green light. And just like so many times in history, there's always an underlying story that may involve intelligence that we know nothing of. And you just hit it right there. They were trying to, so, they were trying to so, get to those V2 uh, sites, or at least, yeah, uh, so at least have them move them. Right. Yeah. And, and you have to see the, the war from the perspective of the Britons. It was London that was being bombed. It wasn't Baltimore that was being yeah. ruthlessly bombed. Yeah. Uh, so they had a particular interest in dislodging the V2s. And then later in the war, we found the V2 to be extremely effective on a discrete target. You know, they, they never stopped developing this rocket. It had 65,000 changes in its development. They were always refining it, trying to make it better and better and better. And at the very end of the war, the United States is ready, uh, the Allies, I should say, ready to cross the Rhine. Hitler orders all of the bridges along the Rhine, over the Rhine, destroyed. Only one of them wasn't destroyed. Um, and that was the bridge, the Ludendorff Bridge at, at uh, Remagen. And we managed to capture it. We managed to start pouring thousands of troops across it. This is our gateway into Germany uh, late in the war. And this is a critical component. And so the Germans threw everything they had uh, at that bridge, trying to knock it down, and, and they couldn't get it done until Kamler shows up. And within a few days of launching V2s at the site, you know, you can't see, you never see a V2 hit the bridge and it falls. But Kamler launches a few V2s, gets them very close, the ground is shaking, the earth, and finally the bridge collapses. Um, so as I say in the book, Kamler was credited for doing that, but you know, you could make a pretty good argument that what he did was open the pickle jar that others had had loosened already, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Great point. So so it, it was that technology, uh, because Kamler seized control of the rocket scientists um, and all of Germany's secret weapons by the end of the war, including Germany's nuclear weapons. But it was that technology and those scientists that Kamler controlled that he was in a position to deliver to the United States. And this is where it really gets fascinating. We also did a story on the Jatlov Pass incident, where those Russian skiers were killed during the wintertime by what is still today is believed to be experimental Soviet and weaponry. And that mm -hmm. these, these young uh, skiers had just walked right into the middle of that unknowingly and got caught up in it. And the next point on that is that the Russians and the Allies apparently split uh, the captured German technology and the captured German scientists. At least one large group went to Russia. One large group went to the U.S. Hope that gives you an open door to start telling that part of the story. Uh, it 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 does. And so what what we found is it was more like finders keepers. 
the first ones there, there was this mad scramble for the technology. And, uh, you know, the first the first troops to get there really, really took them, if you will, which is not surprising. I mean, even among allies, quote unquote, uh, what, what was surprising to me, you know, it didn't surprise me that we were we would steal Nazi scientists out from under uh, the Soviet Union if we needed to. And we tried to get there first uh, to exclude them. What did surprise me a little bit was that we were doing that with the British and the French, too. We weren't sharing things with them. I, I mentioned that this rocket team was housed in northern Germany, and, and that, that's true until January 1945. Uh, the Russians at that point are approaching, the, the, that was called Pianamunda, that rocket site, uh, uh, and the Russians were approaching from the east, and they're going to take Pianamunda. So uh, what we see is that on January 31st, 1945, Kamler signs in order, moving the rocket team to central Germany. Uh, to a facility called Nordhausen. Uh, so after that, they're housed underground at a at the largest underground factory ever built, and it was built by Kamler slaves uh, at a camp called Dora Dora Nordhausen. So the rocket team stays there. They move there in January. In in February, we see the Yalta conference. This is the conference with the big four allies at which they figure out the dividing lines for post-war Europe, that what's going to be in the Russian zone of occupation versus the American zone versus the French zone versus the British zone. And Nordhausen, the new site of the rocket team, is going to be in the Russian zone. So Kamler sort of thwarted. He moved them down there to keep them out of the hands of the Soviets. Now they're going to be in the Russian zone after the war. So he moves them one more time later in the war aboard his personal train, the Vengeance Express, moves this rocket team to Bavaria, southern Germany, within a few weeks march of the advancing uh, U.S. Army. And that's how we got the rocket team, only because of that. And, you know, we lay out the case in The Hidden Nazi, the book, we lay out the case that that, that was deliberately done by Kamler, that, that he delivered that rocket team as part of a deal with the United States in order to try and rehabilitate himself to erase that Holocaust past of his uh, and save his own skin. That's how it happened. That's absolutely fascinating. He also was planning on a Fourth Reich. Can you explain how you discovered that? Sure. That was that was Kamler and others. And this was you know, you have to maybe go back a little bit to, to what this sounds like fantasy to me when I started hearing about this and Keith and Colmer talking about it. It's like, oh, it's like one more thing you, you guys want me to believe that just seems too <laughs> extraordinary to be real. Um, but it, it really does sound not only plausible and possible, but even likely. Um, and, and, and you start back with World War One. You probably remember World War One from the German perspective. Uh, there's this stabbed in the back theory that the German army stabbed the German people in the back as it lost World War One. They were supposed to win. All the reports uh, on the home front were that Germany was winning. They had never fought a battle on German soil. They were still outside their own, you know, original borders. And all of a sudden they'd lost. So it was cataclysmic. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating for the German people. And yet Germany rose again. And we see them ascendant. Um, and then in World War II, uh, they take over vastly more territory than they ever held during World War I. I mean, they're all the way to, to Russia. Um, they're in North Africa. They're in the Middle East. South America. Um, they're ev everywhere in Europe except for England. Uh, so the idea that they could lose World War II and then rise again is not that strange because they have this history of, you know, losing and then rising again. So, and these ardent ideologues, they're just not going to give up. And it makes perfect sense 
that they would have some sort of institutional effort to preserve their ideology and to rise again. Uh, and what we found was a meeting in, in late 1944, so this is about 10 months before the end of the war, there's this high-level meeting in, in Strasbourg with German, high, high, high German government officials, uh, high Nazi officials, German industrialists, uh, so German businessmen. And the message at that meeting was to take all of your assets, all of your technology, all of your gold, and offshore it. Get it out of the Reich. Uh, because we're losing this thing and we're going to preserve our assets for later for a Fourth Reich. Um, that was the purpose of that meeting. Uh, there's lots of evidence that that happened. I mean, by the midpoint of the war, Germany had exported more gold than it owned before the war. Uh, so, you know, you do the math there. They're getting gold somewhere and they're exporting it and preserving it for later. Um, do you believe in the theory that, that Hitler escaped and that that was his body double? You know, it's it's an interesting notion. It feels to me like almost anything's possible, but we we weren't after Hitler. I didn't find anything to really to support that. Um, you know, other than sort of the 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 Nazi ideology, the idea that we're going to win at any cost. Um, you know, and and he did have he did have body doubles. A lot of a lot of you know, especially di dictators have body doubles because they fear assassination. And of course, there were several assassination attempts. The most famous was June twentieth, nineteen forty four. There's several assassination attempts uh, against Hitler, but we didn't find anything. And but we weren't looking for anything to support the idea that Hitler survived. Um, but you know, the idea that Kamler faked his own suicide and and we know he survived. It, it kind of supports that uh, that notion. And and we did see, I, I got to say this, because, you know, we, we found this sort of institutional effort to preserve the Reich and rise again in a fourth Reich. We saw a lot of individual efforts, uh, you know, a lot of exit strategies put together by individual people uh, to try and survive, to get out. Other so, than the rocket program, what did Kamler give us? Did you ever run across that in terms of what he gave our, our intelligence did he give us uh, access to their mines where they had hidden a lot of their stolen loot, anything like that? Yeah, so in the book, The Hidden Nazi, we go into a lot of that. I mean, the rockets are the most obvious thing, and that's, that's one of the things I found most compelling. But we were also able to establish that, that uh, Kamler was in charge of all of Germany's secret weapons, and he had a special think tank. Uh, so it, it, it was everything from infrared technology uh, to radar to special explosives to proximity fuses, uh, to the Messerschmitt jet jet airplanes. I mean, all sorts of technology we just never had. We even, we, we, we lay out the story of a submarine that we captured at the end, actually surrendered to the U.S. Army off the coast of Newfoundland at the end of the war. And it is, it was stockpiled with Nazi technology. And, uh, you know, we explain how the timing of the launch of that submarine sort of coincides with the Nero decree, Kamler, or Hitler's, Hitler's order that everything be destroyed. That order happens, then this Nazi submarine is loaded with booty and sent to the United States. Um, and it's like a Kamler wish list of, of items on this on this ship. And we'll leave, uh, we'll leave that as a surprise for the readers. Would that be fair enough? Yes, of course. What other reasons would our listeners have to pick up the book, other than what we've already said, which is a huge story in itself? Yeah, well, there are so many other, I think, interesting storylines in here. Uh, one, you know, I went to Germany. My wife and I traveled to Germany. I met Kamler's son and interviewed him. Uh, that was an was, amazing part of your book. 
It, it, thank you. Thank you. And it was it was an amazing uh, thing to have done. I mean, and it was very clear to me, uh, this guy, Jörg Kamler was the son's name. He knew his father was, as, his own words, up to his eyeballs uh, in, in the Holocaust and not a good guy, but a good father. The mother of the family, uh, Kamler's wife, lived to 1996 uh, and lived with this son. And you can imagine, I mean, I tried to put myself in his shoes. You can imagine growing up in a household where either your father committed suicide at the end of the war. If he didn't do that and you're left wondering, that means he abandoned his family. An extraordinary thing. And I could tell he wanted to know what proof we had that Kamler had survived. And we've got rock solid proof that Kamler did not commit suicide uh, when the courts said he did. And were he, you, he able, were you able to tell him that? So at that point in time, it was, we, we were being a little bit cagey with each other because yeah. I think he was going to write his own book and, yeah. you know, he wasn't sharing information with me so much. So I didn't, I, I told him what we had, we had documents that we thought were, were pointing in that direction. I wasn't as definitive with him right. uh, as I, as we are in the book. So there's that storyline. Um, th there's the storyline of, you know, Werner von Braun, the, the, the major, the, the key rocket scientist once, uh, once they surrendered to the U.S., there's a story I'd never heard about this before, John, but the Russians, after the war's over, so the war's over, it's peacetime, the Russians sent paratroopers and, and attacked American forces to try and kidnap von Braun. Nobody has. Um, this is just documents we come across in the research, and it, that really it tells you two things. One, they were willing to uh, to suffer an international incident. But what it really tells you is how valuable they thought von Braun and the V2 rocket was going to be. There's another storyline. I, I uh, you know, I mentioned uh, that Kamler was involved in Auschwitz. This other camp he built in middle Germany for the uh, for the rocket scientists was a, a place to house slaves, Dora. And somehow I met this guy who had survived Auschwitz and Dora, both, which is an extraordinary bit of history. So that's an interesting story. There, there's storylines in here about the, the American recovery of the coffins of German leaders from German, you know, ancestral leaders, Frederick the Great. These coffins were hidden away in under my, uh, underground mines. Just all sorts of fascinating uh, little threads uh, in this book. How were you able to get to the documents that you found that proved Kamler's existence, uh, Kamler, that Kamler lived beyond the time when most people thought he did? So, uh, you know, I have to credit uh, Keith Chester and, and, and Dr. Colin Lowry with that. They're just extremely resourceful. So, so World War II is, is in, in my mind, the most massive human undertaking in the history of the world, uh, involving, you know, countries on every continent everywhere and it's as if at the end of it everybody just put everything in boxes and went home so the archives are not very well organized and you have to develop some real expertise to try and figure out where to search and so the documents we found that were key come from a combination of sites uh, across america not just our national archives but libraries small libraries sometimes air force bases right patterson air force base and then Colm Lowry uh, searching all over Europe, the European archives. But one key for us became Freedom of Information Act requests. These are requests where, uh, you know, uh, uh, by law, the, the government has to give you certain documents and they can, they, can, they can withhold some. And that's another interesting storyline. We found two documents the government would not disclose to us. 
under Freedom of Information Act, one written in 1969, uh, 35 pages. These, these documents concern Hans Kautler. One written in 1969, one written in 1987, 87 pages. Both concern Kamler. The government to this day won't produce them. Uh, we don't know what they say. They won't even give us redacted versions. Usually they'll give you, you know, an 87 page document with lots of things blacked out, but you'll get 87 pages of something. They won't even, they, they won't give us a single page. You know, you mentioned Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which I believe was the home of um, yeah, Operation Paperclip. That I believe that was the home of Operation Paperclip. If not the home, it was at least the place where they were brought. And that's also yeah. been a place that's, that has a, a definite home in conspiracy theories. One story that we did involved a, a bell-shaped UFO that landed in a little town in Pennsylvania, not 100 miles outside of that Air Force base. I believed, after researching that story, that that bell-shaped object was actually launched by a Soviet rocket into our atmosphere and guided by those German scientists that they got to the Air Force Base there in Ohio, where their fellow scientists were working for the U.S. in a manner of saying, guess what we did? I don't know how right... I don't know. I don't know how right or wrong I am on that, but it was it created quite a, a flap, as you're well aware, and a lot of people are still talking about that as as a possible UFO today. I believe it was created by those German scientists, uh, their Russian counterpart, and that it was they were trying to send it to Ray Patterson. That's how good they were in their ability to do that. What do you know about that, and can you add anything to that theory? So I, I don't know much about that. What, what I do know, and this is a, sort of a broader answer to your question, and what we learned in, in putting together the book, The Hidden Nazi, is there were veins of research going on in Germany that the Americans never acknowledged, never knew about, um, or they've buried. They're just not known to this day. Um, you know, the, the Germans reportedly uh, didn't make a lot of progress on nuclear weapons, for example. And in the book, uh, um, we just demolish that conclusion by the United States government. It's based on a number of things, but the two major things the U.S. relied on in concluding the Germans hadn't made progress on nuclear weapons was was called the Farm Hall transcripts. So a lot of German nuclear, we're talking about nuclear scientists now, a lot of nuclear scientists were detained at Farm Hall. Uh, it was this palatial estate in the countryside in, in, in England. Um, and there were microphones uh, that recorded their conversations. Uh, and based on those conversations, the United States said, uh, these guys don't know what they're talking about. They didn't make any progress. The problem with that, as we're able to show in, in the book, The Hidden Nazi, is that uh, not, all the rocket science, uh, not all the nuclear scientists were there. Um, so it's not a complete sample. It's just a sample. It's not the complete universe. And they knew they were being recorded and they had agreed uh, to something called De Lizard, which is um, th their code for let's lie to these guys. Let's obfuscate about what we were trying to do in the war to make our records look better. You know, it's you're, you're not in a very good bargaining position if you're a, a German Nazi scientist who was trying to destroy the United States. You know, that's not a pretty picture to try and defend. So they agreed as a group to misrepresent themselves. So that's one part we, we demolished, I think, pretty well in the book. The other uh, was sort of the on-the-ground uh, research that, that the Americans did. Um, this was a mission called ALSOS. It was a group of American scientists who followed 
uh, the Allied troops as we took over Italy and then France and moved through, um, they were charged with visiting all of the, the research sites uh, to figure out exactly how far Germany had gotten in its nuclear research. And they concluded with certainty that Germany hadn't made progress. Uh, but we demolished that in, in, in this book. They, first of all, um, we demolished that conclusion. First of all, there, there were large parts of the Reich they never visited. Um, you know, and a lot of the research we found that was happening, some veins of research, was in, were in Eastern Europe, in Czechoslovakia, near Prague. Um, uh, they never went there. Um, and I don't know how they thought they could conclude that there was no progress made. The leader of that group of the uh, of the American mission was familiar with the Manhattan Project. You know, one of my guesses is that he was looking for something that was massive in terms of research. He was looking for something that involved thousands of people. Um, but we we are aware that there were different veins of research. That is, different discrete scientists working on different parts of the problem in in Nazi Germany. And the other leader of that mission. Uh, you know, after concluding that with certainty that, uh, that the Germans made no progress, said it'd be impossible for any team of any size to cover all the territory to reach a reasonable conclusion. The job is too big. Yeah. Uh, so and, got, and what you're looking for may well be under, underground as well. Of course. Yeah. And there are underground there are underground sites there that that, that still haven't been explored. Um, and there's one there's a, this other interesting story thread. Um, in this book, we call it Stechevice. It's a it's a it's a town in Czechoslovakia. Uh, and again, this is after the war is concluded. Kamler had a special think tank, meaning a, a special group of scientists that operated near Prague. Um, and um, nobody really knows exactly what went on there. There were boxes of documents that were taken by the Russians and never seen by the Americans. There were also 42 bo boxes of documents that were buried in a place called Stechevice. After the war is over, the Americans sent a team of people into Czechoslovakia. So this is not our territory. This is not our zone of occupation. Uh, and, and this team claimed to be looking for uh, a pilot's grave. We went in there, found this site, took the, this is an underground site, you know, with the cavern doors that were booby-trapped, took all these documents out, um, took them back to the American zone, had them for a few days until the Russians realized what had happened. Uh, it became a bit of an international incident. And then we ended up giving the documents back. To this day, nobody knows what those documents were. It's, there's no doubt in my mind that we kept some of them. We photographed all of them. We microfished all of them. Um, but we think those were Kamler's nuclear research documents. Yep. We can't say with certainty they were. And that was the beginning of the nuclear arms race right there, probably. Right. And what's further interesting is that 45 years later, after the Iron Curtain falls, another team goes back there with Geiger counters and, and other research methodologies. So um, lots of interesting uh, sub subtext in, 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 the, in the hidden Nazi. Lots of things for, for everybody, whether you're interested in just the war generally or weapons or uh, intrigue. Uh, it's all in there. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much for giving us such a wonderful, wonderful well-researched book, and thank your partners as well for their contributions, which obviously are many, and for their talking you into it. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for your time. It's, I've had a lot of fun, and thank you for having me on. How can our listeners find your book and you? 
Well, it debuted yesterday. So it is available now in bookstores, uh, on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, online, uh, in all formats. You can buy a hardcover. Uh, you can buy it on Kindle. You can buy it on Audible books. I, I, it's sort of interesting for me to hear my own book read by somebody else in Audible books. Uh, that's a bit of a thrill. But um, So it's, it should be everywhere, available everywhere now. So, John, uh, I would like to uh, deliver a special message to your worldwide audience, and that is that in research in Kamler, we found some holes. Uh, there is some missing information. Uh, one of the archivists who we encountered said, it's as if somebody's come in and cleaned up the files. Uh, so it's very clear to me that when the Kamler deal was made, uh, there was an effort to get rid of a lot of files. It's our hope, my hope and my, my co-author's hopes, that one of your listeners might know the name Kamler, uh, you know, it might ring a bell that their great uncle or grandfather who served in the war knew of this guy. There's a box of documents somewhere in somebody's attic or somebody's basement. Uh, and, and I really hope some more information spills out going forward that helps clarify uh, some of those uh, missing points in the book. And I'd, I'd love to, to write a sequel based on some new information. And how do they get in touch with you? So I have a, uh, that's a great question, uh, a website. Of course, they can reach me always through the publisher, Regnery History. Uh, I have a website, deanreuter.com, um, and I work for the Federalist Society. That's my full-time job. Uh, I don't imagine I'll ever leave the Federalist Society, so I can always be found there. And that's, we've got a website for that as well. And, and folks, that's The Hidden Nazi by Dean Reuter, subtitle, The Untold Stories of America's Deal with the Devil. And this was the devil. And it's up to you, listeners, if you want to decide whether or not it was worth sparing his life to get what we got. But I think the answer is in this book. Is that fair enough to say? It is indeed. It is indeed. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Take care. Great. Okay.